I'm in danger zone here, right? So um, let's, let's just uh, have at it. So before talking about these verses, which we will spend what Paul is writing this. Um, and in order to unpack this, we first have to understand what, what, what the nature of salvation really looks like. Right? I think, I mean, I think part of my vision as a pastor is to try to convey to you what saving faith looks like. I think saving faith is something that we kind of think we know what it looks like, but we're not really sure what it looks like. What does a person who's, who, who is saved look like according to scripture? One of the ways that you know whether you're saved or not is a saved person is a person whose spiritual eyes are open and they began to see that this world is not the world that they thought it was, that this world belongs to God. And God had established unmovable, immutable, fixed laws that govern the reality as we live. Before we're saved, Scripture clearly shows that we thought that our minds and our emotions and our desires determine what reality is. But when a person is saved, God opens their eyes to see that this is God's world. And God has established this world with certain immutable, fixed realities. And a saved person begins to see that. And they live a life in accordance to that orderly reality that God has made. Right? So, I'll give you an example. Matthew chapter 19, Jesus talks about divorce. And Jesus says, divorce is not permitted at all, except for marital unfaithfulness. Jesus says, marriage is, divorce is not permitted at all unless for marital unfaithfulness, no one can get divorced. And the disciples, when they heard this, they asked Jesus, what's the point of getting married? It's crazy. They said, if no one can get divorced besides marital unfaithfulness, then who, then who can get married? Who, should, who, can, who can do this? It's crazy. Why did they ask that question? If divorce is not permitted besides marital unfaithfulness, why can't I get a divorce? Why was that so shocking to the disciples? It's because in the Jewish culture back in the day, divorce, not as common as today, but divorce was ingrained in, in customs. People did get divorced. In fact, one of the hot contentious issues of the day during Jesus' time was, what are the legitimate reasons for a divorce? For example, there is one school of Jewish tradition that says, you can divorce a woman for any reason. If she burned your toast in the morning, that's a legitimate grounds for divorce. School was more conservative. They gave very specific exemptions of why a person can get divorced. But it was just like deferring issues. But Jesus says, you can't get a divorce. Unless, it, unless the spouse is marital and faithful, if that's the cause of divorce, that's a legitimate divorce. Besides for that cause, no divorce is legitimate in the eyes of God. 
Why? Because Jesus says, marriage between a husband and wife is when God takes two people and joins them in one flesh. It is God who joined these two people. I know from your perspective and from my perspective, we thought we got married because, you know, we thought our wives, our future wives was pretty, and we, and they, they, you know, they kind of stirred a certain emotion of romance, right? Right? And we want to get together. And like me, I got a free movie ticket, so I said, hey, baby, let's go to see a free movie. That's how I did it, Right? But we think we courted the person, and the person said yes, and after three years of courtship, or some people, 15 years of courtship, right? You say yes, and you, and you make the decision to say yes. But Jesus is saying, that's your perspective. The eternal truth is that if you're married, it's because God put you together. It wasn't your choice. It may seem like it was your choice, but it's actually God joining you as one body. That's the immutable reality in the eyes of God. People these days want to get divorced for various reasons. The more overarching reason for divorce is irreconcilable differences. You can put anything under the sun under that reason. People get divorced because of irreconcilable differences. But Jesus said, regardless of whether people make that decision or not, in the eyes of God, you are sinning. Because in the eyes of God, unless either one of the parties were married unfaithful, in the eyes of God, with, that, with the exemption of that, no man can separate what God has combined. Because in the eyes of God, the initial marriage between a man and a woman is permanent. That's the structure of reality. You understand? So a Christian begins to see structure of reality in the perspective of God, not in the perspective of culture, not in the perspective of what, how I want to see reality, but through the perspective of God. Begin to see reality is designed in a very specific way. God has designed reality in a very specific way. And I desire to live in, a, live in conformity to that design reality. You understand? God has designed reality. One of the most fundamental ways God designed reality is he designed men and women, men and women in, a, in, in very specific ways. Perhaps this will get me fired. But it, biblically, it's clear. God, when God created humanity... He created humanity in a very distinct way, where he created both men and women in a very distinct way, where men and women, though they're both made in the image of God, and though they're both equal in value in the eyes of God, God designed reality so that men will have a particular function, and women will have a particular function. Regardless of whether this is offensive, okay, I get to go more nice too. Regardless of whether you think this is offensive or not, Regardless of what culture tells you, what it, it's not true. Biblically speaking, God has created men and women for distinct roles. Our society says there's no difference between a man and a woman. Our society says men can get pregnant. 
the society says, if I say men and women have distinct roles, that makes me a patriarch or sexist and I should be erased. Even if I'm erased, it doesn't fundamentally change God's role, God's call for men, God's separate call for men and women in the different roles in their relationship with one another. The calling of God for men is to lead. Men are to lead. The word leading, it gets a very bad rap. The word leading, it doesn't mean usurping of power. Biblical leadership has nothing to do with power. Biblical leadership, ladies, sisters, have nothing to do with power. Who has the power? Biblical leadership has to do with service. Jesus gave heaven for us to become, become a servant, to die for us on the cross as a servant. Jesus taught us leadership by, by giving us an example by washing his disciples' feet. Jesus Christ is, is the Lord's servant. He leads by serving. And men, you are called to lead your families. You are called to lead your church through service. That's the role that God has called for you. And sisters, the role that God has called for you, it's to be your, your husband's, or if you're married, it's to be your husband's helper. And the word helper, it doesn't mean a butler, but helper means an indispensable counselor that will help your husband lead you and lead your family and lead the church. I went to the ballet yesterday. It makes me very sad because I began to like ballet and boring things. When I was younger, I used to like things just as movies that just blow things up, right? I like things blowing up. I like bad guys getting creamed. I love those stuff movies. But as you grow older, you begin to like ballet. You begin to like Movies that just where people just talk for two hours. I love, I love those. I'm getting old. Yesterday I saw a ballet, Romeo and Juliet. And it, there was a scene. Do you remember the famous balcony scene in Romeo and Juliet? Oh, Romeo, Romeo, without our Romeo. That scene. Obviously, because it's a ballet, there's no talking in ballet. They express everything through movement. So that balcony scene is when Romeo and Juliet finally begins to confess their love to one another. What I noticed, but the way they did it was so beautiful. Because the way they expressed love was two independent bodies coming together and moving together through air. They were just... You could see both of them moving separately, and yet they're moving together harmoniously. The woman was like bending and doing this, and the guy was lifting her up, and they were doing this and that and that. But there were separate movements, but they were moving together in one harmony. That's the idea of marriage. The idea of marriage, biblically, is not a 50-50 split. I do my part, you do. It's not a joining together of two independent parties. It's not a contractual agreement between two parties. 
where you say, I will do this, you will do this, shake on it, let's go together. That's not marriage. That's not male and female relationships. We're supposed to move together harmoniously. And the way God has designed you to move harmoniously together is to men serve and lead and the women serve and follow. Whether you agree with this or not, that's how reality works. How do you know that's how reality works? Because that's how God works. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, all gods occupy reality as, as the God the Father leads and as the God the Son and God the Spirit submits to God the Father. The relationship in the Trinity is a mutual, it's, it's God the Father leading and the, and the other, other members of the Godhead submitting and they move together in reality. Trinity is not God the Father does a third, the Son does a third, and the Spirit does the third. No, they move together like Romeo and Juliet. They move together harmoniously, one leading, the other following, all loving each other. Whether you like it or not, that's how God designed reality. The problem with the current, but the church in Ephesus, as Paul is writing Timothy, is that there's disorder. People are not complying with God's created order. There is disorder in the church, especially during worship. And the false teachers were justifying this disorder. What is the disorder in the, in the church of Ephesus? Number one. Men weren't leading. Men were abdicating their leadership responsibilities. How do you know men were abdicating their leadership responsibilities? They weren't praying for the church on, uh, and on behalf of the church. Sermon, was it two weeks ago? Men should lead prayer. That's what Paul says. That's how God, God designs it so that men of the church will lead the church and lead their families through prayer. Men weren't doing that. Whether they were too busy fighting amongst one another. Gentlemen, your call to lead your family and lead the church starts with prayer. Guys think that the number one quality of a father is to sacrifice. Right? I sacrifice my time. I sacrifice what I want to do. I sacrifice I want to watch football. I sacrifice what I want to eat because my wife wants to go a certain way. I sacrifice everything for my wife. And ladies, a lot of women says, yes, the male's job is to sacrifice for me. That's how the male loves me. I'm not diminishing sacrifice. Dude, I sat in a three-hour ballet for my wife. That's sacrifice, right? And clearly, Servitude involves sacrifice. But servitude is not only sacrifice. It's prayer. You need to pray for your family men, and you need to pray for the church men, because that's how God gives you the vision to lead. 
God doesn't merely just want you to sacrifice. God wants you to have a vision for your family. God wants to have, have you a vision for your church. And you do this through prayer. He's not merely impressed with you because you sacrificed. He's calling you more than to sacrifice. But to have a vision. And the recognition that anything that is worthwhile that, is hap- that will happen to your family and anything that is worthwhile that will happen in the church comes from the power of God himself. Therefore, you pray for the vision and you pray for the God's demonstration of God's power in your family and the church because only God can do that. So men, if you're not praying for your families and the church, you ain't leading, you're not doing God's call. I can yell at the men because they can take it. Prove me wrong, gentlemen. But the ladies, I gotta calm down. Pastor Jamo. So men in Ephesus weren't leading because they weren't praying. And the sisters in Ephesus weren't following, especially during worship services. In worship services, they were a source of distraction, some of them, with their fancy hairstyles and expensive clothes. They were diverting attention away from God, and they, and they were diverting attention to themselves. A church is where God is the main focus. God is to be glorified. But some of these sisters, they were more interested in their beauty, their attention, to the glory of God. And there were other sisters in the church who said, men aren't doing it. Our men are pitiful. Therefore, I'm going to take control of the church and I'm going to lead the church. I want to be the main speaker of the church. I want to lead men. I want to have authority over men. That's what I'm going to do. And the false teachers were verifying this. False teachers were saying, look, God is a God of equal opportunity. There's no structure to reality. If you feel compelled to lead, sisters, you got to lead. Right? Men aren't stepping up. Men are pitiful. Men are pathetic. Sisters, so you need to take charge of the church, and you need to take control of the church, and you need to be the main pastor of the church, sisters. That was happening in Ephesus. And Paul is saying, that shouldn't be. Now let's go to the challenging verses, verse 11. He says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. The first word that is troubling is quietly. What does it mean, quietly? Does it mean the women should not speak at church? Did Jamie just sin by reading the scripture verse? What does it mean to can speak at church? Surely he doesn't mean that. 
the instruction that Paul is giving the church in these particular verses is a, it has, relates to what is happening during the worship services when people of God get together. And he's saying, when the people of God get together, women should learn quietly. The word quietly, the emphasis is not keeping your mouth shut or being mute. But quietly means humility, having a humble heart that wants to learn. Quietly means having a humble heart that wants to learn. When the church gets together, when the word of God is preached, women should have a humble heart to learn about God. A humble heart of discipleship. That's what it means. Even though this term is offensive, somewhat be, could be offensive to the person of the modern era, what he says in this verses is quite revolutionary during the time that Paul is writing this. Because during the time when Paul is writing this, women were, were, were viewed as really second-class citizens, property of men. Women in the Jewish culture they were not valued as high as so church in Ephesus is made up of the Jewish people from the Jewish background and the Greek and the and the pagan background. Both cultures, Jewish culture and Greek culture, did not have a high regard for women. And therefore they said, both cultures said, women don't need to be educated. Just teach women basic survival strategies. Women don't need to learn about theology, philosophy, mathematics, anything. Women are just women. Teach them basic things and let them do what women do. That's the overriding. In fact, that's the mentality for most of human history. But when Paul says women learn quietly, he's saying women should be disciples. The world, Paul says, tells women, you don't need to learn. Paul is saying, women should learn in church. Women should learn in church when the word of God is preached. Men should learn when the word of God is preached. Everyone should be quietly submissive before the word, the word of God is preached and when the word of God is open in your life. The way you experience the power of God in your life is when you submit to God and quietly submit to God's teaching. The whole New Testament readathon that we're doing, it is so that you will quietly learn who God is. This is a call for everyone, everywhere, all at once. Oh, that movie. In fact, I think one of the main problems of Christianity is men who haven't learned quietly before the Lord taking leadership of the church. Some pastors out there say wonky things because they don't learn, they don't know God because they haven't quietly, they're not quietly learning from God every day. 
They come with this creative, strange theology and a strange way of doing church based on shallow understanding of the Bible. And that is causing a lot of problems. Everyone, everywhere, all at once. Learn quietly. Women in the church, because a woman's role is submission to men's service and leadership, Paul said, rather than wanting to take control during public worship, have a heart of humble discipleship. That's what the word quietly means. And he says, learn quietly with all submissiveness. The submissiveness that Paul's talking about here is submitting to the created order of things. Submissive means understand that's how God created reality. God didn't create reality where men and women have equal roles. We need to submit to the reality where men and women have distinct roles in the church. Submit to that structure of reality. Don't make reality out to be what you think is fair and equal. But submit to what is made. Look, this isn't Pastor Jade's opinion. It's what God says in his word from Genesis on. So women should recognize the structure that God has made. Women should have a quiet heart of discipleship, disciple during worship. Verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Once again, Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority in the church. Once again, he is contextualizing this command in the relationship within God's people in the church. God's people are the ones who say, reality is not my definition, reality is God's definition. Right? And I submit to the authority. But outside of the church, there are women who occupy different positions, and and, and you can... You can have female boss. I had female bosses before, but primary care physicians are women. You can work for female CEOs. In fact, in the early church, there were female businesswomen that Paul depended on. So he's not saying women, men cannot submit to women everywhere, everywhere, all at once. No, within the context of God's people. Within the context of worship, this is the way it ought to be. But outside, God has called people to different roles. And maybe certainly, you can certainly have female bosses. There, could be, there were queens that people served. So, but within the church, Women should not teach or exercise authority. Teaching and authority in the scripture goes hand in hand. The authority that Paul is calling women to submit is the authority 
when the word of God is preached. Listen to me carefully. The authority in the New Testament, it's tied to the teaching and preaching of God's word. It's not tied to any particular person. It's tied to the teaching and preaching of God's word. That's authority. Biblical authority means teaching and preaching God's word. God saves people, let his people come alive to the preaching and teaching of God's word. The word authority is not tied to a particular individual. But the authority of God's word. Look, my authority over you only pertains to when I teach you and teach you the word of God. I have no authority over your life apart from teaching of God's word. 1 Timothy chapter 3, which we'll study next week, it's clear. Pastoral authority is tied to the teaching office. That's where a lot of Korean churches get in trouble. They think authority and the man are synonymous. They're not, man. They're not. I don't, have to, I don't have the right to tell you who you can marry unless it's outside of biblical bounds, right? I don't have the authority to tell you who to vote for. There's some churches out there where you, before you date someone in the church, you've got to get pastoral permission. And I go, What? That's how cults start. Cults start because there is a distinction between the person and the word, and we think the person equals the authority. It's not. That's dangerous. And I'm glad that I don't have the charisma to think that that, that, that confuse you that me as a person it, in, and of its, in and of myself has authority over you because there are a few of you who make your life goal to teach me, to put me in my place. I'm so thankful that I have brothers here whose calling in life is to put me in my place every time they have the chance. And that's a good thing because me as a human being don't have any authority over you. It's the word of God. So sisters are called to submit to the authority of God's word when a man preaches. Then you will ask me, then why can't a woman preach the word of God? You can in a particular context. But understand this. The direction of the church and the vision of the church is primarily based on what is being taught at the pulpit. It is. We can have a lot of programs. We can have a lot of things. But the direction and the vision of the church has to do with the leading of the church. It's really tied to what is being taught publicly in the pulpit. And God has given that servant leadership role to men. When the word of God is proclaimed publicly in the, in the life of the church. Creation order is men lead 
by serving, and then serve the word of people of God by preaching the word of God when they're together publicly. It doesn't mean women, women cannot teach. Of course women can teach. In fact, in Titus, Paul says, older women should teach younger women. In fact, I think Priscilla and Aquila, I think they're the founders of the church in Corinth. They, you know, remember Apollos, the guy who like spoke really well? When Apollos was a baby convert, Apollo, Priscilla and Aquila both took time to teach Apollos the word of God. So there are clearly instances where women can teach word of God. but in the lead, servant leadership of the, of the church. Paul says, God has appointed men and women should submit. The word of God as, as God's appointed servant preaches the word of God. Are we clear? Paul is not a male chauvinist pig. He's not. Just read the last chapter of the book of Romans. Thanks, he, he, his long list of people that he thanks. He has a long list of invaluable partners in his ministry. Two-thirds of it are women. In Romans 16, the majority of the people that he lists as people who helped him, as co-laborers of the church, were women. So Paul clearly worked with women for the building of churches. when the word of God is preached in publicly, Paul is saying, remember the creative order. And as God's people, we operate within the created order of things. And that's what Paul means in verse 13. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. What does Paul mean in verse 13 and 14? Is it, does he mean it's the women's fault that sin entered the world? Clearly, that doesn't mean that. But in verses 13 and 14, he's giving an example of what a disordered, how sin entered the world through the disordered orderliness of God's creation. Verse 13, Adam was formed first. Formed first means like firstborn. And in the Old Testament setting, firstborn had certain rights and obligations. The right of the firstborn was the firstborn got more property than all the other siblings. Why? It is because primarily it is the firstborn's children that the family lineage begins to propagate within a, within a society. So firstborn children got more property because it is through that lineage that the family expands. But number two, firstborn had the responsibility of serving the family so that the, so that the family will survive in the new land. Firstborn got all the property, but firstborn got the primary responsibility of serving the family so that the family can live. When Paul says Adam was born first, he means Adam was given the, 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 the duty, the role to lead, serve and lead Eve and, and his family. That was a created order. But, he says, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived. Satan came and tempted Eve 
not because Eve was a more gullible person. He came to Eve because Satan wanted to destroy God's creation by, by, by upending God's creative order. God's order says men lead. Satan says, oh yeah, no, I'm going to disturb created order by having the woman lead the men out of, out, of, out, of, out of his relationship with God. To disrupt the created order of things, he went to Eve. Eve was deceived, and then she led Adam to the further deception. The point is not to blame Eve for the deception. But, but as an example of how sin entered the world by Satan destroying the created order of things. And Paul is saying people of God should not be that way. As sin entered the world because, because the created order was disrupted, within God's people, we have to restore God's created order by having men lead as they preach and teach the word of God and as women follow the word of God, as men teach. That's what he means. Verse 15. Yet she, the woman, will be saved through childbearing. What in the world does this mean? Does this mean women can sin and just because she has a child, she'll be saved automatically? Surely it doesn't mean that. There's two possibilities of what this verse means. Number one. First possibility is the, the woman that Paul refers to in verse 15 is Eve, right? And in Genesis chapter 3, God promised Eve, your descendants will rise up and one day crush the head of the serpent. Remember that promise? Even though Satan deceived you and caused sin into the world, your future descendant will rise and crush the head of the serpent. Christians interpret that as Jesus Christ. So one interpretation is women through saved through childbearing, he is referring to Eve, who eventually became who through which through line with which Jesus Christ was born, and through which Jesus Christ saved his people. That's one interpretation. As much as convincing as that interpretation is, I don't people say that's not what they think what Paul primarily meant. What Paul, we think Paul means when he says women will be saved through childbearing, he's thinking about women's gender roles. Who is primarily responsible for giving birth? Who can give birth to children? Men? No, women bear children. Who was primarily responsible for raising children during Paul's, Paul's day? It was the women. Clearly, Paul doesn't mean women should be barefoot and pregnant and not work. That's not what he means. Because Proverbs 31 says, a portrait of a godly woman is a woman who works. And Paul clearly says, it is up to the father to teach their children the ways of the Lord. So fathers are involved in the raising of children, and women can work. Clearly, that's the case. Priscilla worked, right? But Paul is referring to the general gender role of women bearing children and raising children physically. 
when Paul says women will be saved through childbearing, he's think, he, I, we think he's saying, or I think he's saying, when God saves you, he's calling you, women and men, to your gender roles. This is how we begin our sermon. One of the ways that you know that you're saved is you recognize the worldliness of the way that God has created all things. And you submit to that order that God has created. If you're saved, you're submitting yourself into the order that God has created. Women are saved at childbearing means when God saves a woman, he will open his eyes for the women to see what their roles are. And women will serve others and serve the church through their gender roles. Similarly, when God saves a man, he opens his eyes to the gender role that God has called men to be. And men want to submit to that gender role. If you're not living up to the role that God has called you to live, both men and women, you're living a life of disobedience. Man, if you're not praying for your family, if you're not praying for your church, if you're not serving your wife through the truth, if you're just like on autopilot and let your wife determine when you should go to church, if you determine when, that your wife will determine when you go to church, when you will study the Bible, when you will go to small group, But that's not really, you're not really living God's call for your life, right? And ladies, if your husband wants to take spiritual leadership of the, of, of the church and says, Let's, we should do this, we should do that, we should do this. If he says, no, 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 no. I'm tired, da, 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 da. If you're not submitting to your husband's desire to spiritually lead the family, then can you say that you're submitting to God's order to things? Sisters, I promise you, when your husband consistently prays, he will have a vision for himself and for your family. God will convict him to do certain things. He will. And if what he is desiring to do is very biblical, Satan will tempt you to say, disagree with him. He will. But if you are not submitting to his spiritual leadership, I don't, I don't think you're living the life that God was calling you to live. Also, sisters, there are certain things that I cannot do as a male pastor. I cannot truly lead other females because being a father of a daughter, I know there are certain things that women think of and feel and, and go about the ways that I will never understand. 
your calling is to be there for those sisters. Because men cannot be there for their sisters. Especially older, mature, not older in terms of age, but mature women of faith. Your gender, God is calling you to minister to other sisters who are, who, are, who, are, who are going through difficulties in the church. The men cannot lead them. Men cannot. And that's your call. Single people, single women, all two of you, how do you know who to marry? Marry a guy who prays. Marry a guy who prays, who's earnestly walking with the Lord. And brother. Likewise, marry a woman through prayer. Have a discernment to see what a biblical godly woman is and, have a, and let that be the guide of who you select as a mate. Rather than these worldly backgrounds that the world tells you to do, right? There's a God's role, God's call that he has called everyone to live. You know, he has called people to live in a, particular, in a particular role in a particular way. The way you honor God is to know what that role is and submitting to it. And you can only gain that through prayer. I pray that, that, that you will be that. I pray that you will be able to discern what God's calling for your life is and submit to that role. That wasn't so bad. If you have any questions, Pastor Wood's office hours is open. 40 hours a week. Let's pray. Question, listen.